Welcome to episode 19 of the Invited Along podcast. Hello world, this is Juan. And this is Quentin. We're an international couple traveling around the world for love, work, and the pursuit of wonder. Through this podcast, we invite you to come along with us as we discover places near and far while treading lightly and not breaking the bank. After a brief stop in Santander, we continue to walk along the northern coast of Spain to eventually reach the region of Asturias. This week takes us to some breathtaking walks by the ocean, but also has us stranded in some pretty deserted spots, because as our friend Henning says, que sera cerrado. It's time for takeoff, where we give you the details of our itinerary. We left you last week in Guimes, in the peculiar albergue of Abuelo Puerto. From Guimes, we completed the short walk to the city of Santander, the largest city we've encountered since Bilbao. However, at this point, my feet really needed some rest, so we decided, rather than staying in Santander, to instead grab a bus to Santiana del Mar, a beautiful medieval city about 30 kilometers further, and have a rest day here. Once back in shape, we walked to the town of Camillas, Columbus, and eventually to the picturesque port of Yanis. Finally, here we took a rest day as the fatigue of the trip is really starting to accumulate. For accommodations, we simply stayed at a mix of pensions and albergues. Pensions, or pensions, are typically private rooms with a private or shared bathroom, sometimes within a person's home, and usually it's cheaper than hotels. Pensions are also sometimes the only other option, other than albergues, in smaller villages. And they are an affordable way to have one night not in our sleeping bags amongst 30 other people. Now for our in-flight entertainment, here are some of the things we did when we're not busy, well, walking, as always. That's still the majority of our days. When we reached Santander, or rather when we left Gremes, as Juan mentioned, we were leaving this very interesting little albergue, and we reached Santander after a very beautiful coastal walk, uh, and a ferry ride actually, you have to take the ferry to reach Santander. On the way we met two new friends, Zara and Lina, who are both, well it's complicated, but they, to simplify they're Dutch, but they have a very complicated life history. Uh, who we bumped actually into a few times in the following days, and that was a very nice add-on, again, meeting new people. But Santander was also quite sad for us, because this is where we said goodbye to Henning and Mika, after going to a ramen restaurant with them, because we could not have more Spanish food, we needed a bit of a change for, for a bit. And Henning and Mika, you know, we had been traveling with them for essentially the last week, so it felt very emotional as they left, and again... If they're listening to this, uh, a big, 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 big thank you for them for being amazing traveling companions. And we had such a good time with them, both for the serious stuff and the funny stuff. It was incredible. But we did not really stay much longer in Santander. And to be fair, everything was closed because of his siesta anyway. So from there, we just took the bus to Santiana del Mar with a connection in a small town called Torre la Vega, uh, which I'll discuss a bit later. When we took the bus, we ended up in a beautiful medieval town with a lot of domestic tourists, and it was very, very well-preserved and picturesque. 
And of course, I am talking about Santiana del Mar, which actually, fun fact, despite its name, has no ocean whatsoever. So I thought this was going to be a coastal little village. It was not. <laughs> so who gave it its name? I have no idea. Yeah, the joke that everyone does around this area is that Santiana del Mar is a triple lie because it is neither Santa, which means holy, it is not Yana, which means flat, and it is not by Del Mar at all. So none of none of the bits of the name actually mean something that's true. So Santiana felt a little bit empty and Disneyland-esque because once all the tourists left, it was really deserted. We had a quick look around town at all of the major sites, including the Collegiata de Santa Juliana and the Museum of Jesus Otero, who is a local sculptor. We also tried local specialities, such as the milk and flan-like cheese tart combination. So this is where you go into the shop and actually you can just buy a glass of milk because apparently Cantabria's is quite well known for their dairy products. So you can like get a glass <laughs> and that was quite fun. Of course, we also met up with some friends and actually we had a very special dinner to celebrate Sam's birthday. So Sam, if you're listening to this, happy belated birthday. And it was a really nice meal with Sam and his travel buddy, Ted, who we've also had the pleasure of becoming friends with on the road. Oh, speaking of milk, Sam, the painter who is traveling and painting, he actually received a free glass of milk because he was painting right outside a milk shop. Yeah, this is the way he's found to kind of, I assume, uh, fund his travel through Spain, just painting and people giving free stuff. And they're excellent paintings. We cannot wait to see them actually being exposed somewhere. So after this very lovely stop in Santillana, we were back on the road and we made our way towards Comillas, the next stop on the Camino. On the way, we bumped into Benjamin and Sofia, who we have already mentioned. They're a couple from Germany. And they now had their friend Sven, who actually came to visit them for about a week or so, uh, who was following them on the way. Benjamin and Sven had already completed part of the Camino, the two of them, a few years ago, and now Sven wanted to go a bit further. It actually so happened that we all stayed at the very same pension in Comillas, so we were really following each other all the way through. After that, we were able to visit Comillas with them, and it is a very lovely place. Juan mentioned that Santillana feels a bit empty once you remove the tourists. There's actually not really like a town center that you can feel people actually use as a town center. There's only restaurants and things for tourists. But Comillas is very different. Loads of locals. Everyone is kind of hanging out by the old church. There's a lot of really nice restaurants, a lot of really nice shops nearby that are not only for tourists, but also for people who genuinely live there. This was also the way for us to finally try chocolate, so chocolate con churros. It was a bit expensive, but my god, is it tasty. A nice little hot chocolate to finish the day is the perfect cap off to a long day of walking. Comillas is also known for having a house designed by Gaudi. Uh, we didn't pay to see it because by the time we got to the entrance, it was about to close. The only thing I can tell you about it is that it was ordered to, you know, to be built somewhere in the late 1800s, I believe, and essentially the guy who paid for it died a year after uh, he ordered it to be built, so he never actually got to see it finished. But you can if you go to Comillas, and apparently it's very beautiful. 
So I would say between the two, if anyone's walking the Camino del Norte, I would recommend you spend an extra maybe rest day in Camillas rather than Santiana. The next stop we went to was Colombres. Now, it was a very, very long walk from Camillas to Colombres, about 30 kilometers and with very steep climb. This is the first one in Asturias, which is a different autonomous region that we're entering. So as a reminder, we already walked across the Basque Country, we walked across the region of Cantabrias, and now we have entered into Asturias. En route, we stopped by briefly for lunch at a beautiful beach resort town called San Vicente. And it was very beautiful, but in order to explore the town, you did have to leave the Camino a little bit. So we didn't, and we just kind of looked at it from the entrance of the town, but it did look really beautiful with beautiful beaches. And then finally, we arrived in Asturias after an incredibly long and steep climb. So by the time we got to the albergue, the sun was actually coming down, and we were too late to check in. We had already booked this albergue a few days ago by phone, and we called someone, but I guess their Spanish was so fast, we didn't catch that you had to check in by 6 p.m., I believe, and we arrived near 8. So we still called the number at reception, and they finally sent someone in for check-in very begrudgingly. <laughs> and it was overall a very weird atmosphere at this albergue, which was actually a huge albergue, maybe with over 100 beds. But that evening, maybe there were 20 people and nobody wanted to interact with each other. So that was kind of a cool experience, cool as in like it felt frigid instead of a warm and inviting experience. And honestly, we could have just grabbed some beds without paying because you could just walk into a room with bunk beds. But, you know, we did end up paying, doing the right thing. But overall, it was kind of weird and not the best first stop in Astorias. Yeah, to add to what Han just said about the albergues, one thing we haven't really explained about them is that really there is normally a sense of, I guess, camaraderie when you stay a night at the albergue. People tend to kind of help each other out, you know, if someone needs some food or is missing some cutlery or whatnot, there's generally a sense like, you know, it's not necessarily everyone in just one big circle singing songs by the fire, but there is a sense of, hey, we're all in this together, let's chat a bit or let's be quite friendly to one another. And this was really the first time I think we were in an albergue where we had none of that. People were not even sitting at the same table to eat, which was a bit odd. But apart from that, we were still, you know, happy to make it after a very long day and the following day, it was time for us to make our way to Yanis. Now, the path that particular day was absolutely gorgeous. If Asturias was maybe a bit frigid at first due to our first stop in Colombres, it completely made up for it the following day by having those incredible coastal paths, incredible rock formations on the way. There were some rock bridges you could even walk on. We didn't, but some people did. We just had a great time walking through there. It was tiring. And uh, it really required us for us to stop and kind of, you know, take the time to breathe and take breaks. But it was really worth it. Absolutely beautiful decor, beautiful vibe, beautiful weather as well. And we even stopped at what turned out to be a very good Mexican restaurant in a random village called Penduelas on the way to Yanis. Once we arrived in Yanis, we decided to take a rest day like we had discussed at the beginning. And the first night we spent at the Estación Albergue, which is pretty well known for being a very nice albergue, and it was. 
and here we had again this sense of camaraderie, partly because Sam and Ted were also staying there for the night, but in general it was a very nice albergue to stay at, had all the amenities you might need, had a fully fledged kitchen, which is quite rare after, let me tell you that after a few weeks we haven't seen that many of those. Altogether it was just a really good time. The second night we just spent the night at the pension and that was also great for us to just be the two of us. So we had a day off in Yanis, and during that day off we actually met a very interesting couple, Leslie and Carl, who are both American, coming from the Pacific Northwest. They are both retired entrance athletes. So when we tell you that they are running circles around us, it is both literally and metaphorically true. They arrive to stages that are 35 kilometers long, having barely broken a sweat, but they're very nice to talk to, and definitely the kind of people you want to stay in contact with throughout the Camino. So Yanis is a coastal town. It is actually on a strip of land that is between the coast and the Picos de Europa, which is a really large mountain range. Now, I make a joke that it is hilarious that Spain calls these the peaks of Europe, as if these were the only peaks of Europe. I mean, they are impressive, but there are more than one peak in Europe, I hope. Um, but it was still really beautiful, and we were able to just take it easy, relax, have some ice cream, have a nice coffee, work on the podcast, and stroll along the harbor, where there was a art exhibit called Cubos de la Memoria, which are painted cement cubes all uh, lining the harbor. That was fantastic. I'm so glad that we had a rest day in Yanis. And then we had, surprisingly, more Mexican food with Benji, Sofia, and Sven later in the evening. So all in all, it was a very nice week with plenty of rest, but also a lot of challenging walks. Now, speaking of challenges, it's time for turbulence. What didn't go well for us this week? Q, kick it off. For me, it's simple. Torre la Vega. If there's one thing that really did not work out for me this week, is Torre la Vega. I mentioned earlier that we were taking a bus from Santander to Santillana, and there was a change in that little town in Torre la Vega. And when we arrived, everything was closed. And when I say that everything was closed, I mean that everything was closed in a way that I had never seen in an actual city. It generally felt like the beginning of a zombie movie. All the shops that we've tried to go uh, were closed, except for one that barely had any food in it. We were just looking to buy some food. Uh, because we had about an hour between the buses. It's not a very big town. We're like, okay, let's just stop and go to a grocery store. All the grocery stores were closed. Now, I've again been, I've lived in Europe for years. Things can get very quiet on a Sunday afternoon. But to this point, I had never seen it. There was not a single place open. There was maybe one cafe in the entire town that was open. Did not have any food. The bus station itself looked like it hadn't been used in months. Every single screen was straight up turned off. There wasn't a message saying like, oh, we closed for the day. There wasn't even a sign saying like, hey, it's closed for the day, because turns out the reason why everything was closed is because there was a local fiesta, a local celebration that only happens in this tiny town, nowhere else in the province, nowhere else in Spain. So there's absolutely no way of knowing that this is happening until you show up. The bus, of course, never showed up. We had to take a taxi. There were some taxis available. But there was just zero information about the fact that everything was completely and utterly closed. And I would say my turbulence linked to that is just the general closedness of Spain. 
Uh, at the, during the intro, I repeated what Henning sometimes says, que sera cerrado. If you do not understand uh, Spanish, the joke is that normally we say que sera sera. What it is is what it is. But que sera cerrado means what it is will be closed. <laughs> because between the siesta, where the shops tend to close for several hours during the afternoons, and the Sundays that are pretty much already closed, and the fact that every little town and every province and throughout the entire Spain, there are some random religious celebrations that you do not hear about. Again, we usually check calendars for holidays and whatnot, but these are just, you only know once you arrive there. That means there's really towns and places in Spain that feel like they're open maybe three hours a year, and if you don't happen to be in the right spot in the right place, you're not going to be able to get any food or anything. And that is quite frustrating, especially because as a pilgrim, you do not have a fridge, you do not have anything else but what you carry on your back, so you are reliant on places being open for you to feed yourself. So that has become more and more frustrating for me. I was going to say, I mean, for me, it's like a cultural thing, but also I find it amusing. In Yenes, I actually took a picture of a flyer celebrating the Virgin Mary. And it was like a special, special days in the year devoted to the Virgin Mary, which probably means that things are closed. And there were at least 10 days between the months of August and September just dedicated to her and just in Yenis. So that was pretty funny. Okay, in terms of turbulence for me, I had my first Camino cries. I cried twice that week. And they came from just being very exhausted. I actually had to cry. I had a good cry when we were climbing this huge hill and I just could barely do it. And at the top of the hill, there was actually a very beautiful and scenic cemetery and a bench. And I just collapsed onto the bench and had a little sob. Another point for me was just trudging up to this albergue in Columbus. I'm telling you, the last probably two kilometers were a huge ascent, like straight up climb up a mountain. And I could barely keep going except for the fact that behind Quentin and I was a tiny grandma holding some flowers that she got at a shop. And the whole time I was like, I can't let this grandma overtake me on this road. I mean, I know she climbs this probably every single day, but I need to keep going. So that was just very physically and mentally exhausting, making it to an albergue that was, of course, Serato <laughs> at eight. <laughs> All right, let's talk about something more positive with Flying High. What were our highlights this week? Kick us off, Quentin. I think for me, uh, Yanis and the general vibe in Astorias, except for the things being closed, Apart from that, everything else is actually very beautiful. The people, as always, are very kind. And we just got some absolutely beautiful coastal views. I love the local architecture. If you go to Astorias, you have these kind of sunrooms and large windows in the facades of the houses. And they just look, I don't know, very enchanting to me. So I had a really good time with that. And I would say this is really the week where we traveled a lot with friends. Uh, we mentioned... Henning and Mika, Benjamin and Sophia, Sam and Ted, Zara and Lena, etc, etc. So we really spend a lot of time with other people. And in general, I find that it kind of, yeah, makes the time go faster. And it changes the flavor in of the Camino in a way that's very interesting. 
So thank you for friends. That's my uh, flying high this week. How about you? Of course, friends are a highlight for me, but to add on, so I'm not repeating what Quentin is saying, I would say the coastal views have been truly spectacular this week. I mean, these are jaw-dropping. You're sandwiched between mountains and the coast, and these coasts are rugged and they are incredible. And actually, several portions of the Camino, you really get to see this like coastal estuary system where it's the coast and like marshy estuaries and you get to see a lot of birds and fish um, and it's just gorgeous scenery. So definitely coastal views. And then in addition, I wanted to talk about this phenomenon that I'm going to call the human peloton effect. So as I mentioned earlier, I had that huge cry at the top of this hill after just sheer exhaustion. And I really thought that I could not do it that day anymore. I was so tired. But then came along this boisterous group of French speakers, and they were a mix of people from Belgium and Quebec. And they were walkers. We didn't really know them, but because they were so just buoyant, I guess um, Quentin and I got swept up in the conversation and swept up in the rhythm of the walking. So we still had many miles and many kilometers left to go, but I was kind of sandwiched between two people in the front and two people behind me. And they created this human peloton effect where the conversation and their rhythm of walking just carried me for maybe another five kilometers. And these were like uphill kilometers. And I just had never experienced that before. This motivation or drive helped along by other people. So that was kind of a physical manifestation of the power of these connections that we make with other fellow communal walkers. And that's really special. Yeah, I would agree. It's always very important to have that and keep that in mind. Okay, and this week we have another listener question. This time it is coming from Hannah and she asks us, how have language barriers been handled, if any? That's a good question. Juan, what would you say? Okay, I'm a little bit embarrassed here because I've been defaulting to Quentin to speak Spanish. So my Spanish has not improved as much as I would like. You know, there's two of us. If we're at a bar or something, I just tell him like, hey, can you order me a coffee? So uh, I haven't really been working on Spanish too much, but I am trying to make an effort these days. Also, really interesting thing is traveling through different regions of Spain. We are also encountering other languages, such as the language of the Basque country, Euskara. And in Basque country, they are very, very proud of their culture, heritage. There's a lot of historical reasons for that as well after the Franco regime. So actually, you hear Euskara being used on a daily basis at cafe when people are ordering, when people are just chatting. I had older folks coming up to me to intentionally teach me words in Euskara. Like someone was stopping all the Camino walkers on the way to make sure that we knew some words. So they're really proud of the Basque language. Uh, so that's very interesting. Not so much as a language barrier, more like a language experience. 
And actually, I've been really practicing French almost every day. It's a very useful language to have on the Camino because there's a lot of French speakers. So I mentioned people coming from Belgium, people coming from Canada, and of course, there are tons of walkers from France. So for me, I actually feel like my conversational French has gotten a lot better. So I'm quite happy about that. So now it's just working on my Spanish as well. <laughs> What about you, Quentin? <laughs> Yeah, I would say your French has definitely improved, uh, and I'm really proud of you for that. Thank you. On my end, it has been a bit challenging because I speak a tiny amount of Spanish, but I also speak a tiny amount of Italian, and I'm getting them confused. And by default, so in my family, part of my family is Italian, so that is the language that sort of comes to mind more naturally, or at least it was at the beginning of the Camino. Now, I'd say the Spanish comes out a bit first, but... They're, these are two languages that are different, but definitely similar enough that you can have words that will bridge the gap between both, and you end up, unfortunately, starting maybe something in Spanish, and then by the end of the sentence, you fully switch to Italian, which happened to me a couple of times. So I'm trying to have not that happen. Uh, I'm still working on it, but I've definitely improved my Spanish a, a good amount. What I would say is that many people in Spain do speak zero English, so it is important to make the effort to speak the basics. Learning a few words of Basque would also be useful. Now, to be fair, most people that work on the Camino, so to speak, so people who work at the albergues, people who work at restaurants and cafes that have pilgrim menus and whatnot, they know that not all the pilgrims speak Spanish, and they do not expect you to you know, recite an entire José Luis Borges book by, by head. So they're going to keep the conversations really short and sweet. So really what you need to learn how to say is just, you know, hola, necesitamos dos camas para por esta noche, blah, blah, blah. It's sort of like the very basics, and that works for 90% of the case. There's definitely been a few times where the language barrier was there. As Juan explained, we had this albergue that we needed to check in before six, and... That information just did not translate when they were talking to me in Spanish because they were talking too fast. So yeah, I would say all in all, not too much of an issue, but it is very important to learn some Spanish when you're on a Camino. Oh, and Han mentioned French being very useful. That's absolutely true. The other language that's very useful, German, because there are many Germans on the Camino. I'm very fluent in German, so it has helped us a couple times sort of making a connection with German people and asking our way around. For sure. And we just did a poll on Instagram asking our followers and listeners who they thought were the uh, nationality the best represented on the Camino, at least the Camino del Norte, apart from the Spanish. And I think so far it's 47% voted uh, Germans as the number two And yeah, I think Germans probably outnumber everyone else except for the Spanish. All right, that's all for us this week as we continue to walk the Camino for the foreseeable future. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at invitealongpodcast. Or you can reach us by email at invitealong at gmail.com. So long for now. Bye-bye.